In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is business manager Peggy Hines. Peggy and I discuss the intriguing but sad story of Truman Capote, our own obsession with true crime, and why you shouldn't reveal your friend's darkest secrets. My friend tonight, my guest tonight is Peggy Hines, my dear friend. Hi, everybody. Thank you so, so much. I know. I'm so happy you're here because you have been such a great supporter of I me know, since but the I second did. I talked about this. I've told too many people about it. Well, that's and the, that's what you're supposed to do. I know. That's the goal. But I think that's the risk you take, like having your biggest fan <laughs> on here is like, I have to like tone back the excitement and not scream. So um, <laughs> I'm very excited. Oh, well, first, since this is season two, I just want to thank everybody for Really great support, especially you are up right up there. Really positive response. I was really moved by people who would say, I listened and I really liked it. And I thought, I just thought I would sit in the basement and record this and no one would ever hear it. So it's it's amazing. Everybody um, I tell to watch it loves it so much. Yeah. I'm so excited. And um, I had my first official fan, <laughs> Tiana. I want to thank Tiana, Tiana. I love her. I know. I want her to be my new best friend. Oh my gosh, um, matching tattoos. So she wasn't forced to... Listen, I didn't make her. She did this on her own, right? She wasn't Nobody a Nobody strapped her down. No strapped or paid her. So, and I've, of course, got tons of suggestions. I have so many people say, oh, you should interview so-and-so, or you should talk about this, or you should talk about this. So that's, it's nice when people are excited yeah, about it, too. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to do my own thing. I don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> They've never done a podcast. They don't know. Yes. This is my podcast. You've done, like, five or six. You do your so. own. Um, so one of the suggestions that my friend Megan... Hi, Megan, suggested was that each episode I start with just kind of the premise and what what, what it is we're doing here, uh, which I think will be helpful. So basically, what I do is I invite someone to come and sit in my basement in, studio, in the studio, the sound studio, and I think of about a person who would be fun to talk with about with that person. So an artist, a writer, a musician, somebody who I think that person would be interested in, but maybe doesn't know a lot about. Mm. And so when the person comes, they have no idea who we're going to talk about. And that's part of the fun. You know, you don't have to prepare anything. I'm not going to quiz you or question you. It's just you are my listener. And my hope is that you just enjoy being here and talking about stuff um, and that we go on tangents and and enjoy it. So ultimately, when you get here, you have no idea who we're going to talk about. And um, I just, you know, invite people who I have great conversations with. And I know we'll have some good conversation tonight. It's exciting and nerve wracking not to know who it is. Yeah, I'm is such an over preparer that I, I feel know. like I'm yeah. about to give a class presentation and I didn't read the book right. or something. Yes. So. <laughs> so, well, that leads to my next question then. So, Peggy, did you think at all about who I could possibly be talking with you about? Did you? Oh, my gosh. I racked my mind. Okay. And you told my sister Eileen. Yes. And I can't believe she didn't blurb. Like, I know. The fact that she didn't tell me means she was so excited about yes. the person yeah. that I knew it was going to be good. Okay. But I'm like, who could she talk to me about? Yeah. So I'm just a lowly old accountant. I'm like, maybe it's like <laughs> Lauren Hill's tax evasion. <laughs> Yes. Or like, you know, I love a good crime. Uh-huh. I was like, maybe somebody involved in some kind of true okay. crime thing. But okay. I think I'll be excited to learn about anybody. Okay. Yeah, because you and I are kind of obsessed with uh, the true crime genre. Yes. Yes. We have our, our issues with that. <laughs> so, Peggy, I have chosen Truman Capote. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm so excited. No. <gasps> okay. I am so excited because I love him. Yes. I love yeah. him. And I'm like, I have to talk to Peggy about Truman Capote because there's so much with him that we have to. Yeah. So I feel like it's perfect because I equally am excited to learn more about him because there's so much I'm sure I don't know. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. There was a time I didn't know. This is probably going to be a long episode. Oh. So everyone go grab a glass of wine. I know. I should have brought my own notebook to take notes for myself. <laughs> well, you'll, it'll be taped. You'll be able to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my sources for this were um, Vanity Fair magazine. Swans of Fifth Avenue, which is a book, like a fiction kind of uh, novel about his time mm. in New York, Annie biography, Furious Hours, which is a newer book about Harper Lee. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, think, I was telling you about uh, that. Yes. And, of course, In Cold Blood. 
favorite book. I know. So good. It's the best. All right. So I'm going to run a reread it after this, I'm sure. He's famous for writing some of the best known works of the 20th century, including In Cold Blood, Breakfast at Tiffany's. He was a great self-publicist. He created this mystique about himself that drew people's attention even before he was an accomplished writer. But in the end, he was his own greatest creation. So by the time he was born in New Orleans, September 30th, 1924, his parents' marriage was basically over. His mom was a real small town beauty, but she was 17. His dad was kind of a, you know, kind of a rambler. And he was really charming, but just kind of irresponsible. So their marriage was kind of over. So he was raised by the same middle-aged cousins who raised his mother. So back in Monroeville, Alabama. So he's raised, so there's these three old maid cousins and their bachelor brother. And, you know, they took good care of him, but he really was, felt abandoned. He really never saw his dad again. His mom would come and go. And so he really just kind of felt that loss. But one of the cousins, he and she had a really special relationship. And her name was Sook. And she was really, you know, middle-aged, but like almost childlike. Mm. And because he was more mature for his age, they really bonded. Like they really were really good buddies. And there's a beautiful story he wrote called The Christmas Memory. Do you ever remember reading that in school? No. I mean, I I can't remember it by name. So it's a story where he and this woman, this cousin, they're making like, they make like um, a fruitcake every year. But it's this story and it's about this lovely relationship and he calls her my friend and he's just this little boy. And it's such a beautiful story. You have to read it. It's really sweet. He says a lot in there that express how he felt. And he says, other people inhabit the house, relatives, and though they have power over us and frequently make us cry, we are not too much aware of them. So it was just a beautiful... These poor, you know, her and Truman were just kind of in it together. So sweet. It's making me like him more. I know. I always feel like I had, like, loving parents and, like, a loving family, so I can never be interesting. Yeah. (laughs) You know? You needed more tragedy. Yes. I didn't have nearly enough tragedy to make me funny enough or (laughs) artsy enough. Artsy enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'd become a... (laughs) She even made him a baby blanket, which he kept. They said he had with him when he died. Yeah. So he was just like very precocious, reading by the age of four, writing Mm. stories at eight, super interested in books and real effeminate. So he just kind of stood out from other kids. So he really didn't fit in very well. But one of the coolest things is who else was growing up in Monroeville? Harper Harper Lee. Lee. (laughs) Who's actually Nell Harper Lee. Her name is Ellen Backwards. Nell is Ellen Backwards. Oh, okay. And she didn't like, everyone called her Nellie. Because the way it looked instead mm-hmm. of Nell. And so she that's why she published as Harper Lee. Because she's like, everyone's going to call me Nellie. And so she went by Harper Lee. But yeah, they grew up together. She's in, he's in To Kill a Mockingbird. He's mm-hmm. still. Yep. And she's in some of his stories too. So there's a lot with them that's really interesting. So he's living with these cousins. Hanging out with Harper Lee. And, um, but he, her, his mom ends up marrying this guy, Joseph Capote. And they move him to New York City. So he's moved to, um, like, nine years old. He's brought okay. to... I didn't know the mom was... Th- so the mom was still around. She's still around. She was he coming was just and going. He was primarily raised by these... Yes. Okay, the aunts yeah. or the cousins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. At least the mom was still around. Yeah. So she would kind of come and go. She wasn't oh, too interested. Okay. She was basically trying to find a husband. All right. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> that was my goal yeah. in life. Yeah. So I'm, many, I'm done now. I don't right. want to do anything. You're done. Me. Yeah, you got that guy. Check it off. <laughs> Everything's easy after that. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll feel from here. So they lived on Park Avenue, but like shortly after they had to leave because he got arrested. The dad, Capote, the stepdad, got arrested for um, embezzlement. So Mm. it didn't really live too long. So he says he was really serious about writing when even when he was 11. He's like, I had this sense like other kids would go home and practice the violin or piano. I would go home and I would write every day obsessively three at least three hours a day. So even at age 11, he was doing that. Wow. I couldn't I was, do anything for three hours. No. And I, no. Think, I think about, too, even, like, your dad with his writing. Yeah. That's, that he does that every day. Yeah. I, and I'm, like, with the kids that you had and, you know, the jobs that you had, like, what? Yeah. I don't know. He certainly did not pass that training <laughs> down to me. <laughs> after, like, a half hour, I'd be like, okay, what's next? Yeah. Right. This is boring. Yeah. Netflix. Um, yeah. But that I could do for <laughs> seven, seven hours. 17 hours. <laughs> Yes. I get the, are you still watching, like, 20 times? 
<laughs> then I get annoyed at Netflix for even having the audacity to ask such yeah. a question. Yeah, yeah, of course I am. I am. Don't don't ask me that. Just say, should I pause for a snack? Is what they yeah. should be saying. Yeah, that yeah. would be. Yeah, we should Do you need to go to the bathroom. That. Not like, should you, you know, yeah. walk? Strongly worded email to Netflix. <laughs> Can you have a snack button? <laughs> and they could give you suggestions. They could get ads out of it. Yeah, that's a great idea. You've been watching for twelve hours. You need to like either like a physical therapy ad, <laughs> like a yoga studio, <laughs> early retirement or something. Yes. Yeah. Um, even though he was like super smart, he did really bad in school, really badly. He did not. He had a great personality, very outgoing, but knew, you know knew right away that he was a homosexual. That was not really something, based on what I read, that really bothered him. Yeah, it wasn't like a big life realization. Him, he was just kind of like, he yeah. knew that, but okay. his mom was really hard on him about it. But he oh. didn't really seem to care. But she was kind of nasty. Like friends would say, she would make comments about it and say really nasty things. But he did was kind of like, that's me. That's who I am. So he yeah, didn't really. Yeah, she was in and out. He's probably like, who cares about this lady? Yeah, yeah. So when he was about 17, this is when he won this prize from Mademoiselle magazine for a writing submission. He won this award from with offers from publishing houses. And that exposure led to this writing contract. So he wrote his first novel. It's like a novella. It's a sh- pretty, yeah, it's a short, it's a short book, but um, it's called Other Voices, Other Rooms. And that was published in 1948. And that really established him as a rising star. And it's the story about a young boy searching for his father. <sighs> hmm. And definitely had homosexual overtones, oh, which was so. super rare, 1948. Yeah. Right. And one of the characters in there is based on Harper Lee, which is kind of cute. But the best part about the book is the dust jacket, you know, the dust yeah, cover. Yeah. Okay, I got to show you this picture. He has this picture that's literally like, it, it, it. that was the most scandalous part of this was the picture on the dust jacket. People were like shocked by it. It's a picture of him? Yes. This is his dust jacket. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. It's this Truman. come hither. Wow. Right? Come hither. Look at his hand. I mean, yeah. very seductive, right? <laughs> so I think the LA Times wrote that he looked as if he were dreamingly contemplating some outrage against conventional morality. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's like 20. And this is, he's got, he, he made a thing like, oh, I, that's just how they wanted me to pose. But the photographer was like, oh, no, he... <laughs> pose that he chose this pose and what's interesting is that the this picture made in the 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 book made such a um impression on andy warhol oh interesting so andy warhol saw this and wrote started writing fan letters to capote and he when warhol moved to um new york in 1949 he tried to meet capote eventually they they met and they became friends and in the 70s, they sat down, they decided they wanted to do like a show about something about themselves, something. But Warhol's did a one-man show called 15 Drawings Based on the Writings of Truman Capote in 1952. So he really influenced him. And I just think about those two. I know. What characters? I know. I don't know why I never thought that they would have been friends before. Yeah. Don't you think they would be best friends? Yeah. And they have audio cassettes of these talks that they had. And just the, their two voices alone would just oh. been. And they actually, a guy made a play called Warhol Capote 2017 that played um, in a repertory theater in Cambridge. But so all the dialogue was from these recordings. So it was, I, I would love see to that. see that. So yeah. um, they intended to create this play, but it ended up ironically becoming a play. So there was a line in there from um, the playwright Rob Roth, who created the play, and he said, life hurt these two people very much. They were sadder than I thought they'd be and troubled. Life wasn't easy for either of them, really, and I think they both had hoped that fame was going to fix it, and it didn't. And I think that that's kind of what I found in my research was this tragedy of Capote was what he sought after ended up being like his undoing. Yeah. It's very sad. So interesting. That's why I have no ambition. I don't want it to <laughs> don't, get me in the end. Don't peak. I won't fall for that. Don't peak and then you got to no. go down. Yeah, no. Um, so he's around 24. So this is the time where I I watched all these videos and clips and looked at photographs. So he's around 24. So his popularity is soaring. Right? He's in New York. Everybody wants to meet him. I don't think Every- I knew he was so young when he first uh-huh. hit his peak. Yeah. I feel like I have that picture of him in my head. Of him older. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's not like young him. No. Yeah. 
He almost, it's almost like he always, always kind of looked like an old man. I think he lost his hair so quickly. He was only 59 when he died. So he ne was never very old. Yeah. But hard living and losing your hair, I think, tends to kind of make you look a little bit older. Yeah. But he, there's pictures of him with Gloria Vanderbilt dancing with Marilyn Monroe and just these amazing scenes. What people would say is that being around him, he was incredibly funny. He was incredibly intelligent and almost like electric, like there's something magical about him. You know how there's, mm -hmm. you know how there's certain people who you're like, you know, if that person's out, you're going to have fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's going to be, oh, they're, it's going to be a blast because that person's there and they just have that energy. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, like the surface, right? Where you just kind of feel like they're sort of just there just for fun. But people said he was a great storyteller, gifted storyteller. He always, you know, would say something interesting. But they said he, wait, there was something I want to make sure that I talk about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he, he would be on talk shows a lot. So Dinah Shore, which is ancient show. I don't <laughs> remember Dinah Shore. I'm dating myself. But he, they would always ask him to be on these talk shows because he would say something really interesting. Yeah. So he, she says to him, did I read somewhere that you said all actors are stupid? And he says, you're overstating it. I said most actors are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Just such a classic yeah. Capote response. So he admits that he is obsessed with fame, right? And he made friends with rich and famous people, really was observant of their weaknesses, mm -hmm. and developed trust with them and close relationships that he would later betray, which oh. is a whole nother story. Oh, oh Lord, Lord help us. So he's like 5'3". He's... Oh. They talked about him as being... I think everybody's taller than they really are. Yeah. 5'3". 5'3". Like, think how much shorter that is than me. I know. <laughs> I know. Shorter than me. I mean, I'm 5'6", you know? Yeah. So they said he was like an effeminate elf is how he kind of oh. came off. Tiny body, sharp tongue. Sounds um, precious. He said, I'm as tall as a shotgun and just as noisy. <laughs> 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 to get the true sense of him, like I was saying, if you watch these interviews and you watch like that time period, like the 50s and 60s before he gets into the alcohol and the drugs mm -hmm. and the kind of his downward slide, I was just, I was laughing watching him, like watching him sitting at a table, like, you know, having cocktails and dance and talking with people. And when he laughed, I laughed. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I was drawn in. I felt like I was there. And we've talked about this in other episodes where... You know, if you could be anywhere that they always say, like, if you could have dinner with anybody, you know, sit and have dinner with everybody. And mm -hmm. I would always be like, um, Liam Neeson. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I'd name, like, all these really hot guys. Yeah. And someone else would be like, um, Gandhi, Jesus. And I was like, yeah. oh, wait, that's what I meant. What are we playing? <laughs> that's what I meant. <laughs> of course. I get William Neeson and oh, Jesus mixed up, I, so that's that's why. Oh shoot, shoot, yeah. I, no, I met him as what was it, Michael Collins, <laughs> the Irish Revolutionary. That's what I was thinking of. So I think about that. I'm like, I would, I want to have drinks with Truman Capote. Yeah, I want to sit and have cocktails, and I just think it would be a gas, and that I you know. would laugh. Your I head think off. I would just like sit in awe. Yeah, just like let him talk. And that's part of it too. Was that people said so? He made you feel like you were so interesting. But they said it was genuine, that he really thought you were interesting. Like he loved people. He loved talking to people. And it wasn't fake. It was like when he made you feel like the most interesting person in the room, it's because he, he genuinely, he genuinely it. thought that at that time. So you add that like this beautiful Southern. I want to be that person for other people, don't right. you? I, I, like, aren't, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> you, you are. I said I want to be that person for other people. All right. I'm drinking my wine. Maybe that'll help. Um <laughs> So, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so super keeping people entertained, keeping them charmed, this beautiful Southern charm, this great sense of humor, super intelligent, happy to be there, happy to be around with you, wasn't really putting on a show. You know, he really was fascinated. And again, you knew if he was there, you're going to have fun. So when you think about these socialites and these New York society people, they were using him as much as he was using them. They, yeah, he yeah, made yeah. them feel special and important. And they liked being around him because how he made them feel. Mm -hmm. So let me get to the later bits about that. So his early, <laughs> oh, no. his early fiction was um, like light stories, bizarre stories. And he said a lot of it reflected like the anxiety, the insecurity he had as a child. So Capote met his lifelong partner, Jack Dunphy. I think it was 19, around 1948. So this is another one of these like crazy stories. Jack Dunphy and was married to Joan McCracken. Okay. Okay. They were both friends with Capote. They would hang out together. Joan McCracken was 
married to Jack Dunphy, and then she left Jack Dunphy for Bob Fosse. <laughs> All right. Okay. Do you need a Do you need a chart? Yes. So Joan McCracken yes. is a Broadway singer, dancer, actress, mm-hmm. amazingly talented. But she leaves Jack Dunphy to marry Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse leaves Joan McCracken for Gwen Verdon. <laughs> I need a flowchart. So did you see the Fosse Verdon show that was just on the series? What was it on? Oh, I don't know. One of those stations. So good. Okay. It's nominated it. for awards. Oh. It's really good. Sam Rockwell plays Fosse. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds good. It's really good. And so Joan McCracken had diabetes at a time that was not easy to take care of. Mm -hmm. And she kind of lost control of her bodily functions. and stuff. So she had to stop, you know, stop dancing. And she, you know, was failing and was not well. Um, So that's about the time that Fosse left her for Gwen Verdon, which is great. Yeah, how kind. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, he's another one. We could do a whole episode on him. Um, (laughs) Spinoff. She's also McCracken. Joan McCracken is also possibly the inspiration for Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jack and, and um, Joan go through this divorce, and that's when Capote and Jack Dunphy start dating. Swoops so, in. Yeah. They're together for a really long time. They're together for about 36 years. But it's interesting, as like exuberant as Capote was, Dunphy was exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Like they'd be at a party, he'd be in the kitchen. Like very quiet, very. So they did have, they had a good relationship, but it was really defined by freedom. They said more than anything. And Dunphy says, Truman and I were never in each other's pockets, but I don't think two people were ever more concerned about each other. Uh-huh. So it was interesting. So right around this time, so we're like getting through the 40s or mid 50s his mom dies of an overdose that they oh. believe was on purpose. Oh okay. They don't it's not really talked about a lot. He doesn't talk about it in many of the things I saw, so I'm not sure what the this deal is with that. In 1958 he publishes Breakfast at Tiffany's that novella. Did you ever read that or see did you ever see the movie? Yeah, I've seen the movie okay. for sure. Yeah. No, I don't think I've ever read the No, I haven't book. either. And I they said the I book is, <laughs> is a lot different. Books a oh, lot is different. It? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so she's basically like this young girl, eighteen, nineteen, country girl turned New York society mm-hmm. socialite, um, trying to find a husband to kind of support her. Sort of again, sort of like his mom. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. So a lot of people just find that this is like a touchstone for a young soul trying to make it in the big city. Nineteen sixty one was that when that came out mm-hmm. with um, Audrey Hepburn. Nineteen sixty five. Peggy, are you ready? I'm so ready. <laughs> I feel like adjusting my I know. Seat. I see you. You're like, oh, okay, let's do it. Do you need a sorbet? Do yes. You need like a cracker? Yes. <laughs> Palate cleanser. Yes. The wine is fine, I think. Okay. 1965, In Cold Blood, his extraordinary nonfiction novel about the brutal murder of the clutters, this Kansas farm family, brought him international fame, sudden wealth, literary accolades beyond anything he'd experienced before. So this is a new experiment. He called this creation of a nonfiction novel. So it's this new genre. You're synthesizing journalism with a fictional technique. He says he started to write this book not because he was interested in crime, but he was interested in creating a work of art that was inspired by factual information. So he felt like even true stories can have just as much impact as something that you've created, like poetry. Mm-hmm. So the 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 altitude that poetry can get to truth. And true stories can get to that as well. And you add the dimension of it being true, which should make it even more intense. Um, So what happened was he was inspired by this 300-word article uh, that ran in the November 16th, 1959 New York Times. This little blurb in the paper that described the unexplained murder of the Clutter family. So it was the mom, the dad, the son, and the daughter. I think they had had older children who weren't there. Mm -hmm. And they horrific horrific murders they had sh- were shot in the head with shotguns the four of them and just awful so this is in holcomb kansas and it the sheriff was like this is just a psychotic killer and so he's fascinated by this he's like i want to go and find out more about this so he decides to go some sources said a few days some said a few weeks but soon after he went and traveled there and visited the scene he brings along his friend harper lee now mm-hmm. And what's interesting is Nell had just finished a final draft of a little manuscript called To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just submitted <laughs> that. So she's got free time. Yeah. She's like, what's, what's next? Yeah. 
Yeah, she's like, yeah, I just finished this little piece I'm going to submit. So she had just submitted that. So he's like, please come with me. And so what's interesting is, you know, he shows up in this town and they don't know what to make of him. He's just so odd, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, a farm town-ish, it's right? super rural, super farm towny, And it's it just, he, a lot of people didn't want to talk to him. They said they had Nell not been there, they would not have talked to him. That she oh, softened things up, okay. that she made it, um, so that or like kind of they got used to her, and then they would talk to him. Hmm. Um, you know, he kept trying to get interviews with like the FBI and detectives, and so one day the FBI <laughs> showed up at his hotel room, and he opens the door in this pink um, negligee. He's just wearing a pink negligee, and there. So imagine these <laughs> FBI, these Kansas FBI guys, in their brown suits. Yeah. Oh, he's opening the door and he's wearing a pink negligee. They're like, what the hell is going on? They just <laughs> didn't know what to make of him, right? Amazing. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> they just thought he was super weird. So the next few years, he becomes acquainted with everybody. Nell helps the process. And they talk about her ability that where he was like a, a tape recorder, she was a video, like a video recorder. Mm. She would look at a scene and remember how high the mirror was so that when she would so could the girl when she was getting ready for school in the morning see the bottom of her skirt what was on the dresser what so she would kind of just remember all these details when they would they toured that house she would remember all this stuff or when they interviewed someone she would look around and see where he would remember what they said okay and so she would just kind of record the scene fascinating he knew he was bringing Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So basically, you know, they get there early. The town residents are still super shocked about what's happened. And here's they're real suspicious. Like, who's this guy coming in here? What's his motives? These are their it's a small town. These are family like family to them that were just murdered. They did find the killers. I think it was just within six months, maybe or six weeks. I think six yeah, weeks was, they found the killers. Yeah, it was pretty quick. And they eventually were executed for that. So the fact that they he didn't know what was going to happen with the story, that they would fi- even find the guys they did. So one really interesting part is that, he, you know, he talked about all the interviews he did was he never would bring a tape recorder or paper because he felt that that would interfere with the person. So if I'm writing down everything you say, you're not going to respond. not going to get it all and get the yeah, it, emotion in the person's face. And you're not so going to respond the same to me as if I was just looking at you. Yeah, yeah. So he developed this technique where he would train himself to memorize and be able to repeat back. So kind of did this training session. So he said, otherwise they were like, they were just untrusting wariness if I didn't do this, if I didn't look them in the eyes. Mm-hmm. So he said, I would train myself to do this sort of book to, to transcribe conversations using without using a tape recorder. I'd have a friend read passage from a book, and then later I'd write them down to see how close I could come to the original. Wow. I had a natural um, faculty for it, but after doing these exercises for a year and a half for a couple of hours a day, I could get about 90% absolute accuracy, which is close as you need. So, you know, trained himself, which some people say he, he didn't really. I mean, there's talk about his accuracy, but... It was interesting that he felt that was really important. Yeah, you know? I mean, he was already odd enough coming into this town that yes. was already shaken yeah. up. So, but he did. Yeah. They did really endear himself to a lot of those people, and once they kind of let him in, mm. they really did. They were taken over as well. The detectives, the people on the cases, you know, he knew them very well. So they, he was drawn in by that. So he, before he began actually writing the book, he had over six thousand pages of notes. Um, Nell had typed up a hundred pages of notes that she had taken a hundred pages of notes. So all told when the, the third phase of his writing, it took with everything from the very beginning, about six years for him to get this book done. Mm. And he said, you got to be like an athlete in constant training to be a good writer. But researching in cold blood, he said, served to heighten my feelings of the tragic view of life, which I've always held and which accounts for the side of me that appears extremely frivolous. That part of me is always standing in a darkened hallway, Mocking tragedy and death. That's why I love champagne and stay at the Ritz. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense, mm-hmm. too, that he has this tragic, this sadness that he's trying to kind of yeah. cover up. He developed this relationship with the two killers. Oh, yeah. And so he would see them. He had lots of correspondence back and forth, lots of letters. There was, like, big chunks of time that he was not there. He was not constantly with them, although it seems like from what what you see that he was there all the time he wasn't yeah okay there was even a good stretch of two years that he didn't see them in person but constantly writing they would write him and so he promoted this book as immaculately factual 
But there was some controversy because Hickok, one of the killers, wrote his own manuscript. Okay. And he was going to publish it. And then all of a sudden Truman comes flying back to Kansas and all, you know, so they think that he was worried about this getting published before his book was out. Okay. So he, they think he kind of squashed it and kind of like did stuff to make it not appear. Okay. Because that would totally undermine what yeah. he's been working on. Yeah. So it's in, there's interesting stories about that. So they also say that um, there are claims about how truthful it is, but what it did was it transformed true crime. Yeah. The, that whole genre, the narrative. Before it was like a pulp fiction kind of seedy. Yeah. yeah. And now it's a respectable literary genre, which... Obviously, I benefit from wildly. So by popularizing the homicides from headline into, like, these commodities for cultural consumption, he paved the way for, like, things like Dateline and 48 Hours. Yeah. Which is all I watch. My life. (laughs) Right. And I was thinking, too, um, you read... The, did you read the Anne Rule yes. book? Yes, I just did, recently reread it. Did you? Yeah. No, did you listen to it on t- on tape? Or I did tape? not. I'm dating myself. Audio. No. I listened to it on audio, which was interesting because she reads it. Oh, does she? Yes. Okay. So we're talking about the book. Is it The Stranger Beside Me? Yes. Anne Rule wrote it about her um, relationship with Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. And Anne Rule's a true crime writer, but she this was before... She had be- really become one when she met Ted Bundy. And then when she kind of had sus- suspicions about him, <laughs> she's like, what are the chances that I want to be a crime writer and I'm right next to this killer? It's, there's no yeah. way. Right. It was good. That was a really good. It's really good. Any, have you read anything else lately? Any good crime stuff that you? Um, let me think. I did read. Um, what's the one? The Golden State Killer one. Oh, um, uh I'll be gone in the dark. I'll be gone in the dark. Mm. That was good. That was really good. I was reading that while they captured him. <laughs> and I was like, the beginning of the book was totally different than the end of the book. Because mm-hmm. at the beginning, I was like, oh my gosh, he's still out there. Like, he's yes. under my bed. Yeah. In my closet. <laughs> right outside my door. Uh-huh. And then the end, I was like, oh, this is much easier to read. Yeah. When there's a solution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I read that right after he got caught. And I can't remember. I read so many yeah. of these That's true really crime good. things. It's very, it's fascinating to me. And I don't know... I don't really feel like it's a voyeurism thing as much as it's like, if I kind of educate myself about how all these things are happening, then it won't happen to me. Yes. That's a hundred percent why I do it. Yeah. I just, as an anxious person, like hearing how these things happen, if I hear one clue on how to have it not happen Mm -hmm. to me, like, oh, lock the Mm -hmm. window. (laughs) Right. Or two, that it's so far removed from my real life yes. that it is an escape for me to think about those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to watch or read a book about teaching. Yeah, exactly. I, I want no part of it. I know there's a ton of good books about accounting, but I don't <laughs> read them. <laughs> Fascinating. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we're definitely that's, you know, the genre. Oh. It's the second best selling true crime book in publishing history in Cold Blood. What's number one? Uh, the Manson, the Helter Skelter. Oh, that's a really good one. Mm-hmm. It's a really good one. Yes. But the most interesting part isn't even the book. I mean, the book is so fabulous in itself, mm-hmm. but it's what he went through to write the book, I think, and what happened to him after and how the book affected him affected personally. Him. Yeah. Because they they made those two movies mm-hmm. right within the same year, right? They came out. One was Infamous mm-hmm. with Toby Jones as Capote and Sandra Bullock as Harper Lee. Daniel Craig played the killer Perry Smith. Okay. And then there was Capote. Yeah. Which was Philip Seymour Hoffman. So which one did you like? Do you re- did you see him? You know what? I've only seen Capote. Okay. Because I have a crush on Philip Seymour Hoffman. Really? Yes. I don't know why. I've always loved him. I didn't him. know that. Yeah, I'm like the one person on the planet. Come on. I love him. So that's wow. why I watched that one. Oh, okay. But they came out in like the, the same with it, year. W- within Isn't months. that how it always goes? So yeah. Like identical movies out at the same time. So I preferred Infamous because okay. I think I felt Toby Jones was a better Capote. Okay. But what's interesting is that now thought Philip Seymour Hoffman was more accurate. Oh, okay. As Capote. All right. Which I thought was interesting because I was yeah. like, oh, I just. Probably watched the other one too. Yeah. I really. And I actually, I don't love Sandra Bullock, but I really liked her okay. in this. I thought she did a good Harper Lee. So a lot of the content's fictionalized for sure. But the fact is that he never wrote another novel after that. That was it. That was his last book. 
Yeah. In Cold Blood. When you were talking about like his first books, I was like, in my head, I was like, what did he do after that? Uh-huh. A lot of short stories. Okay. A lot All right. of novellas. Uh, not a lot of novellas. Short, just mostly short stories. He experienced a really steep increase in his drinking, erratic behavior, mm-hmm. and this experience really changed him. So many believe that the seeds of his self-destruction were planted during the writing of this book, that he'd gotten close to Perry Smith during those five years of visiting him in prison, writing hundreds of letters to each other, and then waiting for him to be executed. And there was a psychological connection between the two of them. That Perry's mm-hmm. death took it out of him. But Truman knew that for the book to be successful, that these guys had to get executed. Yeah. And there was even a story that they asked him to help them find a new lawyer, and he didn't do it. Because yeah, he needed it for it to be over. Ending. He needed it for it to be over. So oh. that's kind of, but he's, I think there's a struggle with that as well, because here's someone he knows personally. Um, he's a sensitive person. And then to know that you're kind of taking part of this. And I also think here's someone who his whole life has been, I want to be a writer and I want to write this amazing book. And then he does it. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then it didn't give him everything he was looking for. Or, yeah. Or now what? Or what? Oh, yeah, or what? This book, yeah, now this, what? The process of this changed how I'm viewing the world, the process of this. And I feel like, too, and same thing with Nell, right? She, all she wanted to do was be an author. That was all she wanted. And then she wrote To Kill Mockingbird and basically never wrote anything again. That was it. She would write, like, articles and stuff, but she didn't write another book. The one book that came out was Go Set the Watchman. I think that's what it was called. That was actually what she wrote first, and that was what she submitted before To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. And they said it was too dark. They said, no, this is too dark. This is too... So they made her talk. They're like, talk more about your childhood. Talk more about... So she then wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. But Furious Hours, that book, she started to research a trial and a murder case. And she spent a year investigating and getting court documents and never wrote the book. Never wrote. So Furious Hours is about the court case, what actually happened, and then a big, the last chunk of it's all about her and her life and her process. And it was very oh, interesting. Wow. Didn't, nothing came of that. Never wrote a book. That's fascinating. So, yeah. All so, right. And I feel like, too, maybe, you know, he's been hanging out with these New York people, and this is his dream to be, you know, New York social scene. And then he realizes that maybe I have more in common with Perry Smith than I do with yeah. these people. It'd be so weird to like have that much communication and then like remembering who you're speaking to. Yeah. So he was there when they were hanged. Yeah. He was there. He said he was not prepared for it. Um, it How could took you more, be? Like 10 to 15 minutes for them to die. <gasps> you don't die right away. My gosh. And he said he, he vomited. Oh, I would. And then after too. he left, he spent two hours just crying in the car. Perry Smith left all of his personal effects to Truman. So after he died, it was all shipped to Truman. Everything he had. There's a really great short, very short 30-minute documentary by the Maisels. So the Maisels were the ones who did Grey Gardens. Yes. And they did Give Me Shelter. It's called With Love from Truman. And I just watched it on, like, YouTube. And the original title was A Visit with Truman Capote. It was 1966. So this is right when the book's coming out. And so it really focuses on In Cold Blood. And it's just amazing footage of him. They're in his house hanging out. He starts to read from the book, which is really cool. He shows photos that he took with the murderers. Um, He goes through boxes of letters that they sent him. And then he's like, as he starts to read the letters, you can just see he's visibly changed. And he's like, I should not have opened this box. This is a really sad thing to do. So there's as much as he's like, this book is just coming out. It's so popular. Mm -hmm. He's there's a dark side to this. There's a dark side to what he went through. That's also why I love true crime, because like like him, if I had seen like a murderer get hanged, I would throw up and cry. Yes. But then you think of their psyche, where they just murdered this family right. in cold blood. Right. And just left and yes. were fine with it. Right. Like, that's why I love true crime, because that's such a fascinating mindset that yes. anyone could be capable of such a thing. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Did I talk about the in cold, the movie? Oh, I'll t- oh, we'll get to that next. Okay. Hee hee. I won't get with yeah. There's a whole nother rabbit hole we can go down. So um, that's a great documentary. 19th, no, November 28th, 1966, to celebrate the book's reception and his return to New York society. So while he's writing this, he's in Kansas. He's also, he did a lot of his writing in Europe. He would go oh, okay. and write there. So he wasn't really hanging out with his friends the way he did. Mm-hmm. He was working. And was uh, his uh, partner with him? Yeah. So he'd kind okay. of, yeah, he'd be with them if he would travel. But again, they were kind of, you know, they weren't locked in yep, each other's pockets, yes, like he said. Okay, okay. 
So he hosted the Black and White Ball, which is this huge formal party masquerade at New York's Plaza Hotel. That was this cultural spectacle. Some men left for Europe rather than risk the suspicion that they hadn't been invited. I mean, this was like the party of the century. Wait, One, so they like weren't invited? They so weren't they invited to Europe anyway? Left. So... so they'd be like, oh, I was in Europe. I, I couldn't have gone anyways. So people were so worried about... <laughs> being or not being invited this one woman hired a public relations firm to bring pressure on capote to invite her or if he didn't invite her to come up with reasons for why she why to kind of elaborate and so she didn't want him to come up with reasons no that she hired a public relations firm they were like hey like Capote, can she be invited if not can you come up with some excuses for her to save her reputation so she hired a public relations firm because this party was just such a big deal did she get invited? I don't know. Oh. I don't think so. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I'd be like, oh, okay, if this loser yeah. needs a PR firm to get invited, then no, she doesn't. Oh, don't you think? List. Like in that too, he'd love that, right? Uh-huh. People like people were like trying to pay to get it, you know, pay to get an invitation. It was pretty scandalous. Okay, he invited five hundred and forty people, and it was the in crowd. So you've got the Kennedys, you've got Greta Garbo, Gloria Steinem, Frank Sinatra, Andy Warhol. So New York Times actually printed. A list of all the guests. You couldn't even say, oh, I was invited. I didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> they printed a list. That would be me that lied about it. Then the list got printed in the New York <laughs> Times. And they'd be like, okay. Oh, I was napping. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> you know, I slept right through it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wasn't going to go anyways. Yeah. So he was so thrilled. This is just, again, he's delighted by this. He's always wanted to be the to be this in the New York scene. You know, he's got he's been friends with these people for a long time. And so here's this guy who was just this lo- little boy from the southern town who's now like the top, you know, That's the crazy. top of society. So not a lot of people agreed, not a, everybody agreed with this this show because they're like you wrote a book about people being murdered. Yeah, I could see. <laughs> And you're celebrating. Be great. Yeah, you're celebrating this, and so to throw a party to toast a book that's based on the Clutter family being brutally murdered is in really bad taste. So there were people who saw that as well. Um, Yeah, he probably should have given some of the. I guess some people weren't paying to go, but maybe start a foundation. (laughs) So they did make a movie in Cold Blood based on In Cold Blood, right? Mm -hmm. So he he said it had to be filmed on location, had to be black and white. Um, He picked out the actors it took yeah. him nine no, months i've never seen that the you movie no i don't think it's that good it's just it's one of those books that i just love so much yes. i thought like a movie would make it a little hokey and yeah sometimes they're precious and you don't want to wreck it yeah yeah, yeah. so robert blake plays perry smith uh-huh do you know robert blake's yeah okay so what yeah you know what he was accused of <laughs> yeah yes and then she, wasn't she like in the car or whatever so yeah so he was accused of killing his wife or having yeah. his wife killed yeah, was it like in the car, like outside? And he was like, "Oh, is it the valet or something?" Yes. He's like, "Oh, yeah. I forgot something, and I forgot my gun inside." So this was after, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, yes, it's much later. So he had married this woman. She got pregnant. He married her, and they just had this very dysfunctional relationship. And so he just wanted to get rid of her. And so he supposedly, allegedly, hired someone to kill her. Yeah. They're out to dinner. He's like, oh, I forgot my gun in the restaurant. Went back in and came out and she was dead. It's just Don't like, you hate when that happens? You yeah. leave your gun inside and the next thing you know, your wife is dead? So Tale that was 2001. <laughs> I mean, that's 2001. The mother of yeah. his child, right? He was acquitted criminally, but civilly he was found guilty. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that was interesting that... I actually forgot that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to, like, find a good what book else about did... that. Is what was he that? in uh, Beretta? <laughs> Beretta, remember that yeah. show? It's the worst. He's like this cool guy. I don't think like, I've ever actually watched oh, it. Oh, <laughs> let's do that. Let's have a Beretta party. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> Wine oh. and Beretta party. <laughs> it's gonna need to be something. They're gonna have to post the list of the invites at the New York yes, Times. Yes, we're gonna have who's invited. It's me and Peggy. Yeah, <laughs> two names. And maybe TC if he's around. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love it. <laughs> So late 60s, so this is when he starts having this writer's block. Um, And so he's writing stuff, but he's like writing, revising, throwing it out. He's just, he can't really get anything out. In the mid 70s, he published several chapters of this, of what he said was going to be a book. So he did this a lot. Like, so In Cold Blood came out, like chapters, early chapters came out, I believe in Vanity Fair. 
Vanity Fair, maybe? Or the New York, one of those magazines. Early chapters came out. So they were kind of like, you know, teasers and then you'd buy the book, right? Yeah. So he did this with this book that was called Answered Prayers. And the first chapter he released, it was called The Cote Basque, 1965. And that's um, a restaurant that was frequented by the ladies who lunch in New York society. Okay. So the book title is taken from St. Teresa, the 16th century nun, who would say more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. And the novel, he said, this is going to be my masterpiece. This is going to be the best. So dropped on New York Society when it appeared in Esquire's November 1975 issue. And they said it wasn't so much as a story as it was an atomic bomb. Oh, I'm ready. Yes. Okay, so here's <laughs> what happens. He, um, it's this gossip-filled chronicle of society's jet set, this international group of wealthy people who led super expensive social lives, Gloria Vanderbilt, Babe Paley, Slim Keith, Lee Radswell, mm-hmm. Lee, Lee Radswell's um, Jackie Kennedy's sister. Okay. The chapter is basically a few friends sitting around at lunch and telling all the scandals they know. So these were based on real events. Yeah. And the stories revealed intimate details about society friends. So all these friends who have been friends with for 20 years, Peggy, he's revealing all of these secrets they've told them uh-huh. in this chapter. And is he saying that this is fiction? Yeah. Or is he... kind, yeah. I mean, sort of. But he's like so changing the, the names. Reading? Yeah. Okay. But Got anybody it. who reads it or knows them are like, they know who, they're, who he's talking about. Yeah. So his friends felt betrayed. They refused to have contact with him. These are people he trusted and people he vacationed with. He trapped. I mean, imagine like you and I were hanging out. You're telling me these deepest, darkest secrets. And then I go and write a book about it and tell everybody what you said. Yeah. You'd be like, what, what are you doing? Right. When Gloria Vanderbilt read it, she said, the next time I see Truman Capote, I'm going to spit in his face. And, so and- do you think he realized that he would get this reaction? Okay. So that's, that's the that's whole the part. question. Right. Why do you do that? Yeah, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to release this, and I might get famous, but I'm going to get spit in the face. Okay, so this is what I don't I don't understand, and that's what I want to see what your take on this is. Okay. So Anderson Cooper was like, he really hurt my mom. Like, she considered him a dear friend, and he really hurt her. And so when he was asked about it after the first chapter came out and all the controversy, he's like, all literature is gossip. What in God's green earth is Anna Karenina or War and Peace or Madame Bovary, but if not gossip? And then he says to People Magazine that he was constructing his book like a gun. There's the handle, the trigger, the barrel, and finally the bullet. And when that bullet is fired from the gun, it's going to come out with the speed and power like you've never seen. Wham. Dang. Truman. Uh Uh-huh. Take it easy. So they say, but unwittingly, you turn the gun on yourself. Because. Yeah. Yeah. Exposing all these secrets and pow- of these rich and powerful people, that's social suicide. You're done. Mm-hmm. You are done. So That lady was probably like, well, I'll probably get the cut to his parties now, though. <laughs> There'll be a much shorter yeah. line yeah. for his parties. So it was like his social life was basically done. Like people, he would walk into a restaurant, people would get up and walk out. <gasps> he, he was astonished. He was absolutely astonished. He would call his friend, these friends, <laughs> and they would hang up on him. And he was like, what is wrong with you? And he was absolutely devastated. What? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. What? So why did he do it? Why would you do that? Why would you? Is this arrogance? Is Maybe this... he just thought like his like rich, fancy friends with like any attention. So it didn't matter if it was like bad publicity. It was still publicity or something. Right. I don't know. I mean, you have he's an intelligent man. You yeah. have to know at some level that this is going to be cruel. That this is going to be... I kind of want to read it. Yeah. it's it, If you read The Swans of Fifth Avenue, okay. that's all about this. It's such a great book. Okay. It's all about his relationships with them, and then the book, and then what happens in the fallout afterwards. It's a very well-written book. Swans of Fifth Avenue. Okay. Great book. Yeah. Because um, you see the building, the, the relationships, the intimacy that they have. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Babe Paley, like, her, she, her husband never saw her without makeup, and never... She changed three times a day. Her hair was always done. He never saw her without makeup. It was, she was just one of these people, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're going to tell her the deepest darkest secrets that her husband cheated on her Uh. and she found the bloodied sheets from the affair that he had from the sex that he had with this one you know you're gonna so here's a woman who's so concerned about her appearance for an example of some of the gossip yeah that's that she was his best friend i mean so they were just like she couldn't couldn't believe it so 
I don't know if this is cruelty. I don't know if this is like, I hurt so much from writing in cold blood. And I'm so, I'm trying to, I'm so angry about this that I'm going to hurt other people. Other people? Yeah. I don't know. It's just very strange. Or maybe he realized that these people were false and hollow and he wanted to expose that. Yeah. I don't know. It's very strange. Wow. So it's sort of this double-edged sword. I didn't sword. know quite the extent yeah. of that. Where he wanted to be with them, but then couldn't really fit into that anymore. And yeah. so kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so Melanie Benjamin, she's the one who wrote Swans of Fifth Avenue, 2016, that came out. So it's really Saying about... it in my head over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> you text it to me. Ba- sure. I would text you. So Babe Paley, and he, they were really good friends. So she was a huge trendsetter as well. So... This is there's a great story about her. She's in New York again. Everyone's watching her fashion and everything. She's so put together. She had a little scarf on and she got hot. She took it off and she tied it around her purse, thus leading to that trend. You know how they would sell like that was the trend where you have the scarf tied on the purse. That Uh was her. She started that. So that's how influential she was. So why you have scarves tied on purses? Yeah, was from Babe Paley. (laughs) Yeah, really amazing. (sighs) But yeah, they were especially close. They spent so much time together. She, I mean, he traveled with with her, with her husband. You know, she he's you know spent the night. I mean, they they were very very good friends for twenty years. So he chronicled that affair. She was just heartbroken. She was seriously ill at the time, and she was dying of terminal lung cancer. And she never spoke to him again. Instead of being mad at her husband for the infidelity that he had that he yeah, had committed, I mean. she basically blamed him for putting it in print, and she would never speak to him again. But her response paled in comparison to the reaction of another of Truman's subjects, Anne Woodward. She had achieved notoriety having shot and killed her husband mm-hmm. 20 years earlier. They supposedly was accidental, whatever. But he wrote about it and it had kind of been forgotten in society. People had sort of moved on. She was able to kind of regain her place in society. She had two sons, I believe. So just a few days before the Esquire published it, she was found dead. She killed herself. Oh. And they believe that she had an advanced copy of the magazine. And oh. when she read it, she couldn't handle what was going to happen. come out? So she killed herself by swallowing cyanide. Oh. Yeah, so they... That is crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. So they blame, they blame him, you know... That's kind of the, he gets the blame for that. Um, yeah, I kind of want to hear about that whole mm-hmm. trial and how she got away with accidentally. Yeah, that's in Swans. Yeah. husband. <laughs> so then her two know. sons committed suicide years later. And then the, the mother-in-law was like, well, you know, she killed my son and he, Truman killed her. Wow. Yeah. When all this fallout's happening, he basically heads out of town. Um, he goes to California to LA and he starts filming that comedy Murder by Death do you remember that? it sounds so familiar to me Murder by Death so it's a murder mystery spoof it's 1976 it's by Neil Simon and so it's got like famous detectives like parodies like Peter Falk is in it Um, James Coco is in it Peter Sellers there's different characters David Niven, Maggie Smith Alec Guinness. So there are all these, you know, these classic kind of detective-like people in this murder by death, and it's a, just a spoof, uh, you know, murder mystery spoof. Yeah. But I know you've, yeah, it's. I am sure I've seen like mm-hmm. clips from it before. Mm-hmm. It, it first sounds I was so like, familiar. Oh, I'm thinking of Clue, the movie Clue. Oh. I kind of felt like it reminded me. of I don't want to give a spoiler of our Halloween costume. <laughs> <gasps> no. Oh, okay. Nothing. Okay, I'll delete that. Yeah, yeah. Edit that out. <laughs> we wanted it to be a grand entrance. <laughs> I love that movie. So he plays a character in that, and he again, this is like he's supposed to escape. This is supposed to be fun, and he just hated it. He hated filming it. He was miserable. I think you know he's dealing with this this backlash. He li- he's living with um, Johnny Carson's ex wife Joanne Carson. Okay. They're very good friends. Okay. So he's living with her, and she's out in L.A. So she's not really part of that. Mm-hmm. So she was it was easy for her to sort of get over it. Yeah, be separate from that. Be Different sympathetic. Enough. Click. Yes. But she said he was just, he was like, she said he was like rattling around the house. He was just stunned by this reaction. He's like, they, he, he said, um, they know I'm a writer. They knew I was a writer. I don't understand. Why, why are they so upset? They knew that I was a writer. I just feel like the one part that I love so much about his like writing it in cold blood is like him describing people Mm -hmm. like he understands them. Yeah. So like, I feel like it's like not his personality to not understand them and that they'd be mad yeah it's like you i will just i will never know 
but you're like he i mean he, the fact that he commented about that that this is like a gun yeah you he got knew. you got that you got that this was going to be really hurtful and really horrific so around this time I when he's read this. I'm gonna, what i'm gonna go right home and read these articles <laughs> he also he interviewed bobby Beausoleil. is that how you say Beausoleil? he was one of the manson family yes okay so I think it's 73 that mm-hmm. he interviewed this guy. So he he would interview a lot of criminals. He interviewed Sirhan Sirhan, mm-hmm. who shot RFK. And so he was interviewing Bobby Beausoleil, and he was talking about the Manson case. So Bobby Beausoleil was part of the Manson family. He was arrested for murdering this guy, Gary Hinman. Okay. He was driving around in Gary's car. Gary was found murdered and had all the stuff written on the wall, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Manson family supposedly... Decided to kill Sharon Tate yep. and um, Lobianca's to so to make it look like that same murder, so that the police would think they had the wrong guy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He's interviewing this Bobby, and he's talking to him about his. But what he mentions there that's super interesting is that he had also that he probably is one of the few people who knew. Oh, I can't. Oh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. He met Lee Harvey Oswald when Lee Harvey Oswald was trying to defect to Russia. Okay. So he met him there through a friend, and he was like, he was crazy. And he's like, this, my friend was like, didn't even want to have anything to do with him. He was all crazy. Met Leah Harvey Oswald. He was also friends with Kennedy. So he's like, I knew the guy who shot him, and I knew Kennedy. And then he knew RFK, and then he met Sirhan Sirhan. So it's just kind of a weird connection, but that he knew. He's like, I I think there's only one other person in the world who knew both, could say they met and knew both Leah Harvey Oswald and JFK. Yeah. So, um, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so he did a lot of jailhouse interviews. That mm-hmm. I think that crime thing kind of... But nothing... He was going to do this TV show. He was going to do all this stuff, and nothing surfaced of these of this. But they said that his decline was unstoppable, that he had this alcohol abuse. He was using cocaine. He really fell in love with Studio 54. So that's the, the quintessential 70s disco mm-hmm. in New York. It opened April 77, so he described it as the nightclub of the future. It's very democratic. Boys with boys, girls with girls, girls with boys, blacks and whites, capitalists, Marxists, Chinese, and everything else. It's all one big mix. So we would spend nights there, either up in the crow's nest at the DJ booth or mm-hmm. like just on the dance floor dancing for hours, which is where you can imagine him, oh, right? Yes. The little elf. Yes. <laughs> out there. Um, so now he no longer has this New York Cafe Society. And here's Studio 54, and they're like, we don't know who Babe Paley is. We don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lee Radswell's not hanging out here, so yeah. they don't care. So okay. Andy Warhol's the, his buddy, and they're hanging out. And so he has a new kind of group, but this is full of not great yes. temptations. Yes. So it's really devastating. He get, gains a ton of weight. Um, he's, you know, now he's just like just alcoholic bloat. And mm. um, so he's just not, doesn't look good. It's not looking like himself in july 78 he appears on this talk show he's supposed to go on this talk show and he is wasted okay. he is wasted the fact that they let him on there yeah. was pretty irresponsible i think yeah but he could hardly function he could hardly and the interview was like what is gonna happen to you like what what if you don't get a yeah. hold of this problem i wonder if they thought it would just be like good tv or if they were like oh we heard this guy's kind of quirky maybe this is what they were talking about yeah 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 i don't right. know but he's the, he's like, well, I'm just gonna, I'll just kill myself, not on purpose, but I'll probably just kill myself. And it was such a disaster. It made headlines, and they're mm-hmm. like, Truman Capote is drunk, and he's doped. And he reads these headlines, and he has no memory of it. He's like, oh, okay, I need to get help. So he goes away, goes to a clinic, spends some time there, does really well, enjoys it, comes back, but then starts drinking again. So right after that, he decides to go on this grueling 30 college lecture tour. So the fall of 78 and people are like, they felt like he felt like I need to be loved and admired. And I want to know that I still am. Mm -hmm. But he was just not up for it. He was so incoherent. Like they'd have to take him off the stage because he would be so out of it. So it's just really, really bad. And then Jack Dunphy was saying, I would, I brought him home. I took him back to Long Island. He said, I would just watch him. And he was just so tired. It's as if he's at a long party and he wants to say goodbye, but he can't. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I know. I know. So then he talks about that he did stop working on answered prayers. So he had said, this is going to be my great novel. I'm going to keep writing all these chapters. But he says in 77 that he stopped working on that. He 
also had like this really weird relationship with this one guy. Very, very dysfunctional. So he started dating this guy, John O'Shea. O'Shea was an Irish Catholic guy, married. I think he had four kids. And Shea was an, O'Shea was an aspiring writer. So he was just fascinated by Truman and what he could do for him and yeah. you know, wanted to be around him and, and, and get, you know, that his own career. Mm-hmm. Um, but Everyone said he that he was so ordinary, it was breathtaking. <laughs> what a horrible thing to I say. Think about. That's how people describe me. <laughs> no, they don't. Oh, no, man. but just you're so ordinary, it's breathtaking. I was like, what an insult. What a horrible I... <laughs> But I guess you're with all these socialites, you're at Studio 54, then you're with this guy. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. So he was so, um, so this guy just, you know, latched on the Truman. His family, this is how charming he is. His wife and his children loved Truman. Oh, yeah? Loved him. Thought he was great. Thought he was just really... (laughs) Modern family. (laughs) Um, So I thought that was great. That is great. Um, so they had just especially again, if your husband is breathtakingly yeah, ordinary. Yeah, maybe they were. She was maybe happy to get rid of him. They didn't resent the fact that he broke up the family. They were just like they were totally sucked into his charm. And it's funny, okay. <laughs> but it was not a good relationship. It was very bad psychologically and sexually, and it was really disastrous. They would break up. They'd get back together. They they were having lawsuits against each other. It was just horrific, mm. and it ended with he hired Truman hired an acquaintance to follow him and kind of beat him up a little bit. But the guy set his car on fire instead, and it's just it was very dysfunctional. As you do, yes, you know, you just set the car on fire. Yeah, so many places I could go. Set it on fire. So his behavior is just out of control, and friends talk to him like, you know what? The doctor said if you keep going like this, you've only got six months to live. And he goes, okay, okay. let me go. He was done. So his friend Joanne Carson, he turned to her. So it was like in August 1984, and he goes, flies out to see her, and he only bought a one-way ticket. Okay. Which she said was very unusual. Yeah. He would never. He would always have a return ticket, yeah. always have a date that he'd be going back. The fact that he bought a one-way ticket, she found very strange. And so August 23rd, 1984, she enters the guest room. She's like, he's having trouble breathing. And she said she heard these phrases, beautiful babe and answered prayers, which I don't know. I think that's hokey. You think he's saying that on his deathbed? Yeah. Or do you think she was saying that so that maybe those people would? Gonna, yeah. I don't know. You know, it's like Rosebud. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I don't know. That seems a little hokey. I think if he was going to say some final words, he'd make them better than that. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, and I also thought, I think she's just saying that. I don't know. Or maybe she thought a little advertising for unanswered prayers. <laughs> yes. Those were his last words. Yeah. So she calls paramedics, but by the time they arrived, he's dead. And so the official cause of death was liver disease. Um, complicated by drug intoxication. He was only 59. So it was just bef- early before wow, his that? 60th birthday. Yeah, so you were saying like 59. He lived like, a lot of life oh, in I that time, Oh, I thought he though. was in his 80s. Yeah. And that's how I picture him. Yeah. I don't know why. And I love, and so I have here, I just want to show you a couple of pictures, too, of him when he's younger because I love, oh, here's Babe Paley. Oh. Right? Stunning. She's just. So stunning. Here's um, Harper, Lee, and uh, Truman. Isn't that just so cute? It's like they're hanging out in someone's kitchen. So cute. Right? It's probably like a potluck or something. I love that. And this was um, Maplethorpe did a portrait. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked about Maplethorpe. All these connections. It's funny as I I look back at episodes I've done and what I'm planning to do. There's a connection for all of these. Uh It's really creepy. It's like, what's happening? I just randomly pick these. Here they come, mm-hmm. rearing their ugly heads. Um, <laughs> so after his death, yeah. people are like, where is this answered prayers? Right? Where is this manuscript? Mm-hmm. And, you know, his his publishing company had been giving him money for this yeah. manuscript. They're like, where is it? So they never found it. They She kind of said, oh, he gave me a key, but didn't tell me where what lockbox it was for, what bank. And Joanne Carson was saying yeah. that. Jack Dunphy was like, he didn't write any. He, you know, he published maybe one more chapter after that, but I think that was maybe one or two more, but he never, he's like, he didn't write it. He didn't finish that book. So Jack Dunphy died in 92. He died in New York. Their ashes were combined and they were scattered over a pond in their, in Nature Conservatory in New York City. What they also realized too was sometime in the 40s, he'd written a novel set in New York City. Remember he, I said he would be, write stuff and throw it away? Yeah. Or edit it and be like, no. Yeah. So one of his house sitters dug this manuscript out of the garbage. It came to light and it's um, 2004. Said, I pulled this out of the trash. So 
Random House published it. It's called Summer Crossing. Okay. I didn't read it, but it's about a parking lot attendant and a socialite who have a romance. Oh. But Scarlett Johansson bought the cinematic version rights to it or whatever so supposedly she's supposed to be working on a movie version of this yeah so that's something to look forward to um there are a couple quotes that i wanted to point out or at least one that i really thought just summed up his irreverence and his how lovely he was and he's like everybody has to feel superior to somebody but it's customary to present a little proof before you take the privilege So during his lifetime, he achieved a level of fame that was unusual for a writer, but his style and his talent will make him someone who is remembered forever. And he said, there's never been anybody like me, and after I'm gone, there ain't going to be anyone like me again. And that's he true. is right. Yes. Yeah, so that's Truman Capote. Oh, Truman. Yeah. I learned so much new stuff, and now I feel like I have, like, 20 other research projects yes. to do. But right. Now you got homework. Yeah, you yes. didn't have it before. Yeah. Now you got it this after. This is the homework I like. Homework you like. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah, so for <laughs> sure, the um, Swans Fifth Avenue, you will love it. It's yes. such a great book. You really get an insight into mm-hmm. what was happening and what. And I again, I read that and I still am like, why would you do that? Why would you? Yeah, I can't wrap my mind mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, what he created in Cold Blood is just such a great, such a well-written book. Um, yeah, made me love him mm-hmm. so much. I love that book. Me too. Me too. And then the, um, you got to see Infamous. Mm-hmm. And then watch that, the Maisel's half hour. Yeah. Because he's just like in his kitchen, like making them lunch and he's just hanging out. And, talk. and I, again, those are the scenes that I love and seeing the pictures of him with Marilyn Rowe and seeing what he was like in his 20s. I mean, think about how young that is, right? So young. And to, to be in the middle, to be dancing with Marilyn Rowe when you're 23 or 24, it's like, what? I was living in this podunk town in Alabama. <laughs> and here I am. Here I am. So Crazy. Yeah, That's amazing. It's, it's really great. So thank you for indulging me for oh, Thank you. That was hour. amazing. Was it? So good, yeah. How does it feel to be on I this was... end of it? Because you've listened to all my episodes. I know. <laughs> this is different. You almost forget that. Here. I don't want to say anything stupid. Cut it out. Cut it out. Yeah, it seemed like you forgot, Peggy. Thanks. I feel like we talk about just random topics enough and like especially like true crime stuff enough I know. where it feels very natural. Well that's it. I mean, that's what I love about this too, is that I know I'm asking people to come who we have great conversations. We mm-hmm. could you and I could sit for seventeen hours and talk, you know, and uh-huh. it would be we'd be fine. Yeah. Um so when people are, like, suggesting, oh, ask so-and-so, I'm like, I don't know that person well. You know what I mean? I don't know yeah. them well enough to know to know what kind of conversation we're going to have. And yeah. so I have to make sure that I'm mm-hmm. keeping it to people who I, I can trust. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> but people who I, I know well enough to know this is going to be fine. Yeah. You know, and that it's just going to be like we're sitting chatting at the table. And I hope the people who are listening feel the same way, that you're part of this and and listening to friends talking. Thank right. you. I won't spread all your secrets like I had planned to do. <laughs> Cross it right out of my planner. What am I? Se- what secrets? <laughs> oh shoot! You're gonna blurt th- blurt them out? Yeah. Yeah. Got... This is this is the outlet that I was looking for. <laughs> I actually have a list right and here. And another thing. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you forget I get to edit this later. So. Yeah. <laughs> Number one. Like that beep sound. <laughs> it's blocked out. All right. Well, so. I have, um, I'm on iTunes and I'm on Spotify, which I couldn't say before when I first recorded this because I didn't know how to do that, but they're on there. Fancy. I know, iTunes and Spotify. Um, we also have the website, thesodramaticpodcast.com. So if you're interested and want to find links to all the things we've talked about, so the Swans Fifth Avenue documentary, all that, there's links on there and we talk about page more information about that. Um, and I think that's it, right? I, nothing else? No, I think that's it. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Peggy. Oh, thank you. I love you. It was so You're much fun. Best. Love you, too. It was really fun. So fun. And it's okay to be so dramatic. <laughs>